But for today, uh, we of course have arrived in the book of Nehemiah, and we have been through, as you know, Chronicles, Ezra, and now Nehemiah, written by the same, as far as we know, Chronicles written by Ezra, but certainly Ezra and Nehemiah, all written by the same person, and covers a similar period of time. Nehemiah sort of moves on a little bit from Ezra chronologically, but we're all dealing with essentially the same period of time when the uh, Israel of Judah had been dragged off to Babylon. They served there 70 years, and then they started to come back uh, and rebuild their lives. And we saw all of that through the book of Ezra. But we get to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah was all sorts of things. He was an intercessor. Uh, his job, day job, was a cupbearer. Uh, <clears throat> he, he was a builder, and, and also he was a target of the enemy. And you can be sure you'll experience all of those things uh, in life in various shapes and forms, especially uh, if you're involved in any form of leadership. And Nehemiah definitely is a, is a great book to study uh, under that subject of, of leadership. But regardless of that, uh, we can learn and apply many things uh, to our lives from what we understand and what is revealed uh, in this book. And so Nehemiah, we, we, he, he starts out, he hears about a crisis condition. Have you ever heard about a crisis condition? I heard about a crisis condition last night. Yeah. The All Blacks lost to Argentina. <laughs> Oh dear, oh dear. And so, um, sorry if, any, if you're hoping to wait to watch the game later, but um, there you go. I mean, uh, <clears throat> thankfully my, my balance in life is not drawn by uh, results of, of such things uh, as much as I might passionately like rugby. Uh, hey, it's not the, um, the biggest thing in life. And, and, and the, our balance in life comes from Christ, regardless. Whatever's going on, uh, that's where we get our balance in life. But anyway, uh, Nehemiah heard of a crisis condition of what was going on in Jerusalem. Now, some thousand odd years after the time of Moses and 400 years before Christ, Israel, of course, uh, were in a terrible state. The nation was destroyed. Uh, they were dragged off to um, Babylon. Jerusalem was, was conquered by the, the Babylonians and, and that, that great temple of Solomon was destroyed. And so when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, uh, they, they took everyone from the city and the region. There were several different waves that they took back eventually. You know, there was nothing left. Uh, and so for some 70-odd years, they served that time in, in, in Babylon, as was prophesied. Jerusalem had become a ghost town uh, and with you know, potential to end up like many other ancient cities today, just sort of a, a pile of, of rocks and sand. And so when the Jews were deported to Babylon, they began to make their own homes and got about doing their own lives. You know, they, they, they probably started up, you know, cafes and whatever else businesses they might do and market gardens, whatever that's going on, dog grooming businesses, you know. They just got onto life and, and did their whole thing. Um, accountancy and um, all or whatever. Life just continued on. They got into, involved in life in Babylon uh, and they had no real desire to go back. Why leave? You know, things are really pumping here in Babylon. It's the greatest city in the world. And so when the, the time came for them to move back, not many went. It was sort of only 50-odd thousand. There could have been several million that actually moved in there or were dragged in there. And so some of them, though, did go back. 
Some of those, of course, who were part of the, the Babylonian world and then what would become the, the, the Medes and the Persians, whatever, they rose to important areas and positions in government. We think of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the early days of Babylon. Uh, they became leaders. Uh, Esther. Esther rose, that whole issue with Esther, that her, the book of Esther and, and everything that happened in Esther was during this time, uh, just probably prior to Nehemiah under the king by the name of Ahasuerus. Uh, he, he was just the one that was before Artaxerxes that we're going to read about. Uh, that, that happened. Um, Malachi was prophesying during this time. But after 70 years of that captivity, you know, they were, they were given opportunity to return to their homeland, the promised land. Uh, and so we have those um, folks that are heading back. And so um, we, we saw that um, Zerubbabel, he went back with the, with the first and the, and the, and the, the biggest chunk of people. Uh, Ezra came back and rebuilt the, the spiritual foundation uh, in the work of, in, in the temple after uh, Zerubbabel's beginning of getting things going and rebuilding the temple itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book of Nehemiah begins some 15 odd years um, after uh, what happened in, in Ezra. Uh, and almost 100 years after the first captives came back to the promised land. So things, time had gone on. And some, uh, you know, 150 years after the city was originally destroyed. And so a period of time has gone on here. But the walls of the city of Jerusalem were still in rubble. The walls were broken down. Now before this, some of the citizens of Jerusalem had tried to rebuild the walls, but they had failed. Uh, we read about that in Ezra. Uh, <clears throat> they were stopped by their enemies, and, and it sort of the obstacle was too big, and they never sort of got going again on that rebuilding of the wall project. So the walls were in ruin. And eventually the people were in a somewhat distressed state. And so Nehemiah begins to hear about this. And so the first few verses of chapter 1 of Nehemiah, we read this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who were left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem was also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So here's the distressing information. Of course, the ones that escaped, we, we know that there were those who escaped at various points when their, their initial um, you know, overthrow by Babylon, some people sort of still stayed back and, and continued on and, and, and after time... Uh, the returnees came back and, and so people were there whether they had come back from Babylon or whether they'd managed to survive and stay there and their families had sort of lived in this sort of broken down uh, state. But people were there and here's this information that this fellow Nehemiah is receiving. He's asking hey, about, hey, what's going on over there? So it starts off with the time, the month of Chislev. This is somewhere around uh, November and December. Uh, talking about the 20th year. Uh, that kind of seems a bit random, doesn't it? But what it's referring to is the 20th year of king uh, at the time who was Artaxerxes. Uh, there were numerous Artaxerxes, but this one is known as uh, Longermanus. Uh, we, we'll find out later he was also a cupbearer, and we'll talk a little bit about what that is. But here he is, this fellow um, Nehemiah. He's, he's living in a place called Shushan. 
And, no, I don't have a lisp. <laughs> Nehemiah lived in this place, uh, the capital city of Persia. Uh, this is about 150 miles north of the head of the Persian Gulf. Uh, and he lived, as it says here, in a citadel. And so uh, Citadel was a fortified palace uh, that, of the Persians. And so right away we know Nehemiah uh, is, has a degree of, of standing. He's in a position of importance in, in, in that time, in that place, and in that government. He's living in the palace of the king of Persia. Now, he said, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived, and concerning Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah's body was in Persia, but his, his heart and his interests definitely were in Israel, in, in, in the place of the city of Jerusalem. That was 800 miles away. He wanted to know from those returning, hey, how are things going over there? How are things in Jerusalem? Tell me about it. Now, we might think that guys like Nehemiah, he had a, a, a responsible position, that he had other things to sort of occupy his time, not really too worried about what's going on over there, a distant city, never been to it, um, a people he'd mostly never even met. You know, he's, he's living in Shushan, and the, the Jews are sort of probably in Babylon and scattered around. And so, uh, you know, he's got other things to do, do in his life, hasn't he? But because his heart was for the things of God, and were not necessarily for himself. He had a heart for the place of God, for the, for the country of God, uh, for, for the land that God has established, and, and, for, and for the city of Jerusalem. There is something about that piece of real estate, isn't there? Today, God established a nation. He, he, he established them in their land. Uh, and that's why Israel, as a, as a piece of, of real estate in the, in the world, it is special and is precious to every follower of Christ, uh, to every Jew, obviously. And so Nehemiah is inquiring about this. He, he really has the heart that's reflected in Psalm 137. Remember a couple of weeks ago we read that psalm, it's, you know, the, by the rivers of Babylon and all that, right? We, we know about that one. It was written, that psalm, by the, some of these people who had been dragged off to Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, you know, how can we sing God's song in a, in a strange land? And, and they were sort of lamenting about the fact that they were in Babylon. And a couple of those verses uh, in that psalm, we read this. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And you can, you can see the heart and the sentiment there that certainly is reflected, I believe, in Nehemiah that he was of this thinking too, that, that he wanted to exalt Jerusalem. It was in his DNA, it was in his genes. Uh, that was his, 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 his land where he had, uh, his forebears had come from. And, and he was probably would repeat the same words. If I... If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. And it's like saying, hey, if I forget you, if I forget about Jerusalem, then may I just become, you know, totally unskilled and everything. Forget everything that I've ever learned kind of idea. And so Jerusalem was special. It was obviously special to God. It was special to the people of God. It was special to Nehemiah. And so the news he received was not encouraging. 
The people were called survivors. Uh, it wasn't really a hopeful title. They were in great distress and reproach. The walls of the city were broken down and the gates were burned with fire. It doesn't sound like a, a good place to go to or a, you get that message in your tourist brochure looking around places that you want to go and stay at. You're not going to go there. And so the bad state of the people and the bad state of the city walls were, were, were connected. You see, in the ancient world, city walls, they had to be you know, functioning. They had to be complete. If there was any breaks, then it was vulnerable to enemies. There was no defence, there was no protection if your city walls were broken down. We read about that in Proverbs. You know, the, the person who can't control their anger is like a wall, an unwalled city. An unwalled city could be just you know, taken over by any enemy that's coming through. And if your wall was broken down as a city, then you were just fair game to whoever's you know, kicking around. Well, hey, let's just go and you know, rampage through this city. An unwalled city was regarded as a bit of a backwater town. Nothing really valuable in there because anything of value has been taken. They can't protect themselves. It could be stolen and removed easily. There was no defence. And so those living in an unwalled city, they lived in constant stress. They lived in constant tension and fear. They never knew who might show up you know, in the night and just rip everything off. Come in and you know, steal your e-bike. <laughs> what a world we live in, right? Now, whatever happened to just like things that make noise and blow smoke and, you know, powerful engines that, you know, eat up but truckloads of oil and coal or whatever, but you know, we need an, you know, an e-bike that's silent. Anyway, I was born in the wrong era, but uh, that's it is. Hey, if you're into e-bikes, go for it, Matt, because they're fantastic. Uh, but anyway, imagine if your e-bike got stolen. You know, you've got no protection, and this is the problem uh, that, that came about living in an unwalled city. You had no protection. You could just be ripped off at any time. So you're going to sleep, you know, uh, wondering, uh, are you going to lose? What are you going to lose tonight? Interesting that also there was the fear of, of, for your family, for wife and children. Uh, you know, it was a brutal time. Uh, the temple could be rebuilt. It was. It was made beautiful. Um, but, you know, anything valuable could have been, been taken away. And so no wonder the people were living in distress. They were living in disgrace, the word reproach. You know, they were living in a place that was looked upon by anyone else as sort of a bit of a, a wipeout, really. They can't protect themselves. They can't even get their, their, their walls rebuilt. And they were living only as survivors, just surviving. Sometimes in life, that's all we can do. Isn't it? We're just surviving. There's the stuff going on around us, and man, all we can do is just survive. All we can do is just sort of get up each day, and I can just sort of get to the Weetbix box, you know, and that's about it, you know, and, and just sort of get through the day. And, and there are times in life when that happens, isn't it? But we don't necessarily live there. Uh, we, we, we look forward to, to moving from there and, and, and um, becoming more than in, in a survivor. Well, they were living constantly in this sort of idea that they're just survivors. Romans 8 tells us that, hey, we are to be conquerors. And sometimes in life we, we do have survival mode sort of phases, uh, but we are to live as conquerors. We can live through, as conquerors through him who loved us. And so what, did hap- what happened when Nehemiah hears all this information? 
What do you do when you hear all bad information? The one thing to fix it is to go and make a nice cup of tea, right? <laughs> oh, man, that's terrible news. Oh, make you a nice cup of tea. You know, um, and of course, that's just some of our British heritage, I guess, isn't it? You know, the cup of tea fixes everything. But anyway, what happened here, verse 4. So it was when I heard these things, these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so his immediate reaction was extreme. He, he, just, he just didn't feel bad for Jerusalem and his people. And, and well, you know, God bless you, be warm and filled and, and see you later. It says here he, he sat down and he, and he began to weep and he began to mourn. So he took this on board. He was moved and he was shaken by what he had heard. We read that he mourned for many days. So God was going to use Nehemiah to do something about the situation. He didn't really, Nehemiah didn't really realise it at the time. But first God did something in Nehemiah. And any great, or any work of God begins with God, the God of the work, doing the work in the vessel that he will use to do that work. It might be a burden on your heart. It might be like this case, you know, just, just he was just crestfallen, he was, he was mourning. But God does a work in before he does a work through. So Nehemiah had a heart that was moved, uh, not just a, a cold heart, but a heart that was supple and, and was able to be moved. And, and we need to remain in those places where our heart is moved. God prepared this long ago. Nehemiah's important position in Persia, along with the heart curious about the welfare of Jerusalem, its people, was not a coincidence. As the Jews say, coincidence is not a kosher word. God is working behind the scenes. How is God working in and behind the scenes in your life? So often we don't realise it. We just sort of got a problem. <laughs> like Nehemiah, man, he just feels bad about this. He doesn't probably have any great supernatural re- revelations that, wow, God's really working here because I really feel so bad. Uh, he's just feeling bad. And so that's often the case. That's often how where we're at, you know, and, and stuff's happening around us. And man, this is just a, a train wreck. But how is God working behind that? God prepares the instrument through which he will accomplish his work in his time. Now, if we could just freeze the situation right there and go back and interview Nehemiah at that point, all he had was a problem before him. His heart was moved to grief and distress. And at that point, if you asked him, hey, what are you going to do? He most likely would say, well, man, I've got no idea. No idea. I believe he probably would say, but I will pray about it. And that's often a point where we need to be brought to at times. I've got no idea what to do about this, about this thing that I've become aware of, but hey, we've got to start by praying. And that's where he was at. Of course, with hindsight, we know how the, out, the outcome of it all. But at that moment, Nehemiah, he just had a problem, much like what we can experience when we're at the front end of the situation. We haven't arrived at the back end where we can look back and see how God worked. And say, wow, it was amazing, wasn't it? But you know, if we put ourselves back in, in the front of it all, it's, it's, it's too easy at that point uh, to just sort of get stuck there and immerse ourselves in the trouble and lose sight of any way forward. And that's what had happened in Jerusalem. The walls remained broken down. There had been resistance and they hadn't got any further. Of course, it does play out into prophecy, as we'll see in a moment. So often God moves the furniture in our lives to get us to the point, like Nehemiah experienced, where he was 
moved. And he had to start praying. And while all this is happening, God is preparing him for the work he's going to do through him. So God prepared Nehemiah to lead a group of people to accomplish a certain task amongst much difficulty, as we will discover. And so Nehemiah is definitely an example of some of the aspects of leadership. Leaders must prepare themselves for difficult work because it simply won't be easy. It was Alan Redpath who said this, There is no winning without warfare. There is no opportunity without opposition. There is no victory without vigilance. For whenever the people of God say, let us arise and build, Satan says, let me arise and oppose. (laughs) That's kind of about it, isn't it? And for sure we will see this uh, coming in truckloads against Nehemiah. Much opposition was coming. And so Nehemiah's reaction sort of went sort of beyond just sort of an immediate emotion. It says that he was fasting and he was praying. Uh, So it was sort of an extended period of time here. Many times a concern will come over us sort of in in a flash and quickly pass away. But if God is wanting us to get involved in something, then it will abide, it will grow, and the, and the burden will remain until something happens. And often we just need to wait and pray. Fast and pray. Whatever, however the Lord may lead you. We should also note well that Nehemiah did not do. What he didn't do, he didn't complain, he didn't whine, he didn't See who could fix this problem? He immediately did what he knew he could do, and that was pray and seek God. Not sure what to do about this. Something needs to be done, but I don't know what. But let's start praying. And reference here to the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah also had a clear understanding of whom he fasted and whom he prayed to. This was the God of heaven. Now, there are many gods that people trust in, but only the God of heaven can really... Meet our needs. We've spoken about that at the beginning today. The God of creation. The God who created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who has reached into mankind and through Christ and says, come to me. That is the God who calls us into a, a, a relationship with him. I believe in God. Now that's a phrase that was repeated by many people. But who is that God is the big question. And so Nehemiah, he prays. Prayer is essential. If your vision is so big that only God can accomplish it, then you need to pray. But if whatever that vision is so, is, is so small that you can accomplish it yourself, well then, you know, it's almost like, well, good luck. Uh, we need places where we, can, we have to pray. We can't do it ourselves. God brings us into those places where our only and first response has to be, we need to pray. Now, that's a good thing. To recognise that this is too much for me, we need to pray. It appears that Nehemiah prayed for four months before he did anything. Now, that's a lesson, especially for us guys. <clears throat> you know, we tend to be, to be task-orientated, don't we? So we have a, a problem, let's go and fix it. And hey, especially husbands, you know what it's like. 
your wife tells you something that needs some attention, so right, we're going to do this, we'll do that, and you know, this is what we're going to do, and so on. So you've got the plan all planned out, and you, whatever, and she said, hang on, I don't want you to do anything, I just want you to listen. <laughs> I'm the only one that's ever had that problem, I know, but um, some of you might reach that one day, but sometimes we need to just stop and pray, and not do immediately. We don't want to use prayer as an excuse to not do when the time is right. But firstly, we've got to stop, listen, sit, pray, wait upon the Lord. And that's what Nehemiah did here for four months. Later on, when the work of rebuilding the walls actually begins, it only took 52 days to finish the job. But that 50-day project had a four-month foundation of prayer. I think there's a lesson in that for us, isn't there? Nehemiah took his pain and his stress to God in prayer and and seemingly was able to leave it there. It's amazing how prayer will do that and and will relieve your stress. You may be trying to relieve stress through other things. Oh, I'm so stressed out, I'm going to go and watch the rugby. (laughs) Well, that makes it worse, doesn't it, when when they lose. Or some other distraction. All that does is divert your attention, doesn't give any solutions to stress. But prayer will give you strength when you wait on the Lord. We know from Isaiah 40. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. See, Nehemiah did wait upon the Lord before he did anything. He, yes, he was stressed. He was concerned. He was, he was mourning. He was fasting. And he waited upon God. A lot of action would come, but not until after he had waited and he had prayed. And I said, so here we have Nehemiah, his prayer. He comes to God in humility. He says this, I pray, Lord God of heaven. O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you. Verse verse 5. You... You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now. Day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So you notice the flow of this prayer? See, humility begins by simply understanding there is a God enthroned in heaven and I'm not him. (laughs) I pray, Lord God, of heaven. I'm praying to God of heaven, great God. The recognition that we are under God's authority. Great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant, speaks about mercy and those you love. See, this reflects the fact that Nehemiah knew God and knew his characteristics and attributes. He knew about God, not just from a distant, but from a closeness, from an experience, from a relationship. He knew God was, firstly, the great God, the God of heaven. A great and awesome God. One who showed mercy. And one who showed love. 
And he says, please let your ear be attentive. And so humility also understands my dependence on God, doesn't it? When Nehemiah desperately asked God to hear the prayer, it reflected his complete dependence on the Lord. Only God could help. And if God would only hear, Nehemiah knew he would help. You see, God will allow situations into your life to expose your need for total dependence. To call upon God in that time of need and and to recognise, God, I, I need your help in this. Humility will also confess sin openly. Nehemiah plainly and simply confessed sin without any attempt at excusing it. We must always... Avoid excusing ourselves in the confession of sin. May we never say, Lord, if I sinned. (laughs) Or, Lord, I'm sorry, but you know know how hard it was. Or any other such things. We can find great freedom and open, honest confession without any attempt or excuse. And this is what Nehemiah did. He says, says, I have sinned. Humility identifies with the needy. He says, both my father's house and I have sinned. We've acted against you. He puts himself into this mix. Now obviously Nehemiah, as far as we're aware, wasn't caught up in all of this. But he openly and passionately put himself in there with his father's house and prayed by using the we instead of they. He could have said, oh man, these people, look what they've done. No wonder they're in strife. But he immersed himself in it and he recognised he was just as guilty. And so he, he continues on in the prayer, verse 8. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there. I will bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power. And by your strong hand. And so here's a, a powerful way to come to God, isn't it? And, and, and asking him to remember his promises. Nehemiah said, Lord, you made a promise to Moses and to the nation. No doubt this is one of the, the aspects of power in prayer. To, to, to speak of what God has already said. To bring out the promises of God. You know, sometimes our kids can get one over us. But Dad, you promised. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did, didn't I? <laughs> but hey, I think God, he invites us to do that. Yeah, God has promised. What has God promised? We look through his word. He's, he's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. He's, he's promised that if we search for him with all our hearts, we will find him. And here, uh, Nehemiah brings out the promises that, yes, there will be problems if you reject me, but if you return to me, I will return to you and I will draw you back together. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Nehemiah quoted this conditional promise. The condition was returning to God and keeping his commandments. Now, he couldn't really know what was happening in Jerusalem as far as that is concerned, but he knew that he was keeping them. And he identified himself with the nation in their sin. He was now identifying himself uh, as 
returning back to God and calling upon God. And he says this in verse 11, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. And so Nehemiah concluded by asking God to bless him when he would soon speak to the king. Here was the king of Persia. And Nehemiah was a cupbearer to him. And he's going to speak to him about this. Nehemiah was going to do something about the sorry state of Jerusalem's walls and the people. And he knows without God's intervention, he can do nothing. Now, this has come after a period of, of time of, of prayer and consideration and all the fasting and everything that's been going on. He, he's come with this plan. No doubt he's, he's been seeking God to, Lord, what do I do about this? And he says, let your servant prosper. And so here is a prayer of a man of action. This is not a sideline critic. Plenty of sideline critics writing stuff, making sure that they don't get their hands dirty. But here was a guy who got his hands dirty many times over. Nehemiah doesn't say, make it all better or make the problem go away or God get someone else moving on this problem. He said, God, use me. How do you want me to use me in this situation? It was Spurgeon who said this. Laying the matter to heart, he did not begin to speak with other people about what they would do. Nor did he draw up a, a, a schedule or a scheme or a plan about what might be done. If so many thousand people joined in the enterprise, but it occurred to him that he would do something himself. He saw a need and he got on with it. I really like that. I really like the way that initiative, you know, hey, there's a need, let's just do it. Let's not sort of complain about it or whatever. Uh, let's just get on with it. Sometimes, you know, that's what the issue is with, hey, let's form a committee. You know, let's have a committee to oversee the committee. And then we'll, you know, by the time you've got all the committees working, there's no time left to actually do any working. You know, it can be sometimes all hooey and no doing. Sometimes we just need to get on and do stuff. And, and I think that's, you know, one of the things that really inspires me about Nehemiah. You know, he, he laid it out before God. He knew he needed help. He, he didn't know what to do as he prayed. No doubt there was, there was things that came, came to light. But he said, right, I'm going to do something. And, and he was one man who stood in that gap. And we'll see what happens and how that was used by God. You know, Nehemiah, we'll pick up on him again uh, next week. But, but, but Nehemiah, the, the, the name means... The Lord has comforted. And we're going to see in the life of Nehemiah that he experienced that many times over. It sort of sums up, I think, a little bit about the person of Nehemiah. It's somewhat a reflection of his life. He not only knew and experienced the comfort of God, but he knew the source of that comfort. He didn't you know, look to the news, the sports results for that comfort. <laughs> he looked to God. He is the one who brings comfort. Not only did he know that's where his comfort came from, but he experienced that. And he called upon God. And I wonder <clears throat> what's happening in your life today. Are there things where hey, you just need to stop and call upon God? He is the one. He is the source. As, as Nehemiah starts out, you are the great God, the God of heaven. 
As we've been reminded in the psalm this morning, you know, the, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's the God that we seek. That's the God that, we, we, um, that saves us. That's the God who, who's, who's the source of our comfort and our strength and our hope and our eternity. Wherever you're at today, I pray that, that you would have a fresh awareness and perhaps a fresh work of God's spirit in your life reminding you that God is the source. He's the source of our strength. He's the source of our hope. He's the source of our comfort. And may Nehemiah be someone who, who we can relate to, a guy with a secular job that was used in an incredible way to achieve purposes that were prophesied. We'll see how, it, how all that works out. And, and uh, this, this guy, who an ordinary guy, but with a, an important job, was used to fulfil an important aspect of prophecy that we can look at today uh, and, and, and follow along and, and look ahead, uh, all included in what God was doing in his life and it affects even how we look at life today. So uh, may we just be uh, have our hearts open as we go through the book of Nehemiah that God would speak to us. Let us pray. Father, we do just thank you, Lord, for uh, this, this, um, this man Nehemiah, all the experiences that uh, he's going to be led into. into. How you positioned him in a piece of history and a a part of the world to accomplish your purpose at a certain time and how it impacts us today. So Lord, we do thank you that you are the great God, the God of heaven, the same God that Nehemiah prayed to is the God that uh, is is relative in our lives today. So Lord, may you take the truths that Nehemiah experienced, the the fact that that he knew comfort, he he knew the source of that comfort, He knew the source of his hope and strength and guidance was in you. May we also, with hearts stirred by the same Spirit of God, uh, be drawn into that place of acknowledgement that you indeed are the great God. As Paul has said in Romans, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Lord, we look to you today as the one to strengthen, to equip, to give us victory, to lead us forward in the life you've given us. And may we not look around at what someone else should do, but Lord, may we be the one to stand up and say, yeah, Lord, use me. We ask, Lord, now as we just conclude in worship, Father, would you speak to us through your, the power of your spirit, the message you have for us, for each person here to take today in Jesus' name. Amen. This stand shall we conclude in worship. And just take a moment to reflect on how God is working in your life and what is his message for you today? You think of all that time that, that uh, Nehemiah just spent you know, four months thinking about this bad news he had uh, and how that was part of the process. Uh, often we want to short-circuit that process. Sometimes we just have to let God do his work in his way uh, to bring us, bring us to that point, uh, the next step in our life for him. Let's stand, shall we?